All right. Philippians chapter 3, if you would take your Bibles and open them to that chapter, we'll be diving in and I think considering one of the great passages of the New Testament about not only salvation, but how to have stability in the middle of suffering, finding joy in the middle of a life that's complex and sometimes filled with injuries and hurt. Let me give you a little bit of the broad context, and I think it will frame it well for you, and then maybe you and I can do a little bit of work on teasing out some ways it might connect to our life before we read the text together. The church in Philippi, that's why it's called the Letter to the Philippians, it's a city named after, I believe it's, it's Philip, but it may be Philippa, the, uh, the wife of a Caesar, but... Uh, it's not super important that we know why it's named, but this city is a Roman colony filled with veterans from the military. So the letter itself emphasizes the idea of citizenship because speaking to a bunch of Roman citizenship was essential. It's like a whole other class of people within Roman society of elevated and privileged people, the Roman citizenry. Uh, in fact, when the Apostle Paul is, is arrested, one of the Roman soldiers asks him how he got a citizenship because it's so expensive and so exclusive, he was startled that a man of Jewish descent owned it. Uh, it, was, it was incredibly difficult to be a Roman citizen because of the privileges and the um, special status that it entailed. And so you see throughout the letter, there's this recognition that there's a better citizenship, a more valuable citizenship that comes with something much more precious that every Christian possesses. And yet one of the inevitable consequences of being a citizen of heaven is being a stranger on this earth. And being a stranger on this earth brings with it consequences that often are at least categorized in the letter to the Philippians, is suffering. So you and I might not experience the type of suffering that the church in Philippi did, where probably general uh, societal outcast was the, was the category they would feel. Um, probably there were financial repercussions as well as social repercussions, that there would have been much suffering that they, they could have experienced. And you might be able to at least project a, a sense of this. If in your workplace, especially if you don't work for a, a small employer, you might know personally, you started boldly and carefully explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ only saves those who have faith in Jesus Christ, and everyone else is condemned to eternal destruction. Give that unfiltered, boldly, in your workplace and see how it goes with you. Your coworkers might not appreciate you so much more anymore. I just realize some of you work for our church. Hopefully, they would be okay with that statement. <laughs> but generally speaking, the reason we don't talk about religion or politics is they divide, but religion particularly not only divides, it will often bring with it baggage of suffering in those relationships. 
Some of you might recall at some point, whether speaking to family or friend or co-worker, sharing with them the impending consequences of sin if they do not turn to Christ and seeing the face or the heart turn hard towards you. Have any of you ever been called judgmental? Not because you try to climb into the judge's seat and say that they deserve the penalty, but because you just merely recorded from them the sure and certain consequence of sin because we know who the judge is and we know he unerringly and perfectly gives justice. That's a terrifying reality for anyone who stands as an enemy of the cross of Christ. The Apostle Paul is concerned that his church, while experiencing suffering from a culture that does not love Jesus, would allow division, would allow the, the cost and the expense of suffering, the sacrifice that suffering brings, the hardship that suffering brings, or even the personal cost of holiness to be so expensive that they would falter or stumble within their faith and fail to hold on to Christ. Now let me just see if we can at least tease out some ways that I would be concerned within our church that this might be a real concern. If Christ calls you to an expensive and costly path forward within your life, and you realize that either by being faithful to Christ, you give up on privileges or experiences or pleasures, or by following Christ, you experience sorrow, Christ becomes expensive. So if I were to tease that out, let me just give a, a real-life example, I think, in most junior high and high schoolers who are really trying to achieve excellence in sports. In order to be excellent in many sports, you have to play club. Club sports often occur on Sundays. So <clears throat> this child, who will inevitably make the professionals and make millions for you, that's what your club coach will tell you if you only give up your Sundays, has, has this dilemma within their soul, right? If I, if I commit myself in sign and blood that I will give my life to this sport and give up Sundays, then I will succeed. And so this child has this small choice. You would see this again maybe in the dating world. Really wonderful person who's an unbeliever, who happens to like you and begins to cultivate your affection towards them and you begin to love them. But in order to continue that relationship, you inevitably have to minimize the commands in Scripture that call you to both a holy practice, don't sleep with them, and a holy partnership, certainly don't marry them. And in our culture, that means something very costly has to be given up. And so you say, well, if we're going to continue this great relationship, we're not going to sleep together, and you need Christ, and that person runs for the hills. And you lose someone you care about deeply because of Jesus Christ. Or you turn down your Christian commitments you minimize the call to holiness and you begin living a life of sin heading towards marriage because it gives you what you want. 
So for the sake of something you want, more than Jesus Christ, you, you act as though you can have the thing you want and still maintain a hold on Jesus. You might say something like this, I can keep this boyfriend and I still love Jesus. Right? You see that in your mind. You make a deal that you think somehow you can compromise, that your arms can hold on to both these things, that you can have what your heart wants in this life and still keep the Savior for the next life. Right? You believe your arms are long enough to grab a hold of both. Perhaps suffering. Or to keep doing, going down that relationship trail. You can imagine that person, if they get married, let's say, Eight years later, later, sitting in my office saying, Pastor, I made a grievous mistake. I should never have married this unbelieving guy. To which I'm thinking, I know. We told you. And they say, but it's, it's miserable now. and Life is hard. and We have two kids, and they're never going to know Jesus if my husband keeps talking to them about the Lord the way he does because he hates Jesus. I think the Lord really wants me to be happy, so I'm considering divorce. And so because of the friction, the hurt, and the injury within their home, once again, they are tempting themselves and tempting the Lord by saying, I can have escape to get to a place of peace and do so sinfully and still have the Lord. The Philippians are in that type of grind. Jesus is expensive, and he will cost you a lot. Philippians tells us he's worth it. Here's one of the ways you know the scriptures are true. If I was writing the scriptures and I'm lying to you and telling you to buy this product, I'm not going to tell you how much it's going to cost you. I'm not going to tell you how difficult it might be. I will sell you on rainbows and butterflies and never tell you that coming on the backside of following Jesus can often be something like a cross that he says take up and bear. Now here in, in this chapter it's really the backbone of the book. He's given examples that we might see how expensive it is to follow the Father's will and he gave the example in Jesus Christ how much did it cost him to follow the Father's will? Like the glories of heaven were set aside. He suffered by being obedient to the Father to the point of death. It almost cost Epaphroditus his life. Timothy has sacrificed so deeply for the cause of Christ. He says, I have no one else that shares the same soul-driven, Christ-focused heart as Timothy. And he holds these men as examples. Christ himself is obvious to us. But Timothy and Epaphroditus to the Philippian church were embodiments of the heart and the spirit of Christ and how expensive Christ can be. And rather than hiding them and saying, hey, don't worry, what happened to Tim won't happen to you. Rather than saying, hey, Epaphroditus is a fluke. God, is just, he just pours out goodness on everyone all the time. Don't worry about Epaphroditus. Don't look over here like some shyster. He holds them forward and says, look at these trophies and examples to follow. Because inevitably, you and I will be asked to give up the pursuit of something 
And so lose out on an opportunity, a pleasure, a privilege that we think would really satisfy us. Or God might hold us in a place of hurt or suffering or anxiety where cares and concerns are pressed upon us. And he says, do you love me enough to stay in this marriage, to break up with this unequal relationship? Do you love me enough that you'll love me more than soccer on Sundays? Do you love me more? And so we sacrifice. We come to chapter 3, and he's driving that principle on us. And we need to hear this. Because if your patience with Christ is wearing thin, if you are suffering because of the providence of God, where he has given you the gift of suffering this year, if God has given you a child, that just is difficult. If God has given you a marriage where your partner is a sinner, if God has given you financial hardship this season, if God has called you to bear the burdens of life, this text is meant to encourage you to hold to Christ. And more than just hold and survive, in fact, the first verse calls you to rejoice not in your trials, not in your circumstances, but in the treasure, the worth, the goodness of Jesus Christ himself. Look with me in chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14 as we introduce this concern that the apostle has that we might hear how good it is to have Christ. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that, I, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. For one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So you look at this text, 
The Apostle Paul, in somewhat of a stem-winding way, does not have a good flow of logic that's easy to follow and makes fantastically beautiful homiletic sermons where they're Ill- illustrated and, and, that's not the word I'm looking for, where, where, where they're all starting with the same letter. Illiterated. Not illustrated. Once I got it wrong, I wasn't going to get it right. This text here in front of us is intended that we might find our joy and confidence in the Lord during suffering, during temptation. I'll say it again. God's reason for inspiring this text is that you might find joy when life hurts. You might find joy when God calls you to sacrifice. That you might find joy in saying no to pleasure that is sinful. I speak to a church, again, that has experienced hurts and suffers. I I am speaking to a church where sometimes these trials are years or decades long. If at the least the Lord has not called you into these areas of suffering, these epics of suffering, he has called people in your church into them, and you must encourage them with these types of concerns. Point them to Christ. He's worth it. Often I think we fail to see the implication of a text for ourselves, and so we fail to counsel others with it. So at the least, listen well so that you can carry this counsel to coffee shops and living rooms throughout our church. First, the idolatry of misplaced hope. The idolatry of misplaced hope. Look with me in verses 4 and following. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. (laughs) Seems like a fairly bold, audacious claim. Well, he he begins to give his pedigree, if you can say it this way, of of what what is a reasonable confidence for him. And and we'll do a little bit of uh, work to make sure that we recognize that he is not merely talking about religious things. He's talking about anything that can grab our hopes and our affections and and in which we can begin to think we find hope. But his particularly is Jewish in orientation. That's his background. And just, just as a caveat, lest you think he's living in Old Testament thinking, he's not. This reads as a, as a blueprint for how to get the Old Testament wrong. Paul is a really, really bad Old Testament guy until he gets saved. And when he gets saved, he gets it right for the first time. Okay, so when we read this, you may have a tendency to think, he's a super good Old Testament believer. He is not. He's an Old Testament unbeliever. That's the whole point of having confidence in his flesh. His confidence was misplaced confidence. So we look in verse 4, and he says, I have more reason to boast in the wrong thing than any of you have. Here's his confidence. Circumcised on the eighth day. You can see a little bit of a rhythm in the linguistics here. He'll say something like, as the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Literally in the Greek, this would say something is, like, as to circumcision, I'm an eighth dayer. Kind of has that same rhythm in the Greek, but you miss it here. His point is this. Even on the stuff he wasn't consciously doing, he was flawless. Right, this is God's command. It was given as a sign of a covenant that God had with Israel. This is a sign that he was fully devoted to God even when he didn't have a heart to devote. Because his parents devoted him to the Lord. Signed and sealed as a signal of him being God's people, he has this. 
he's circumcised. He's an eighth dayer. This is a list of seven. That was just number one. Number two in this list of seven, he's of the people of Israel. That is, not only was he marked out as one of God's, as an eighth dayer, circumcised the eighth day, he's also in the family of God. He's one of those people in the Old Testament you keep reading, and the children of God, the children of Israel, the children of God, the children of God, the children of Israel. He would view himself as an Israelite, as being part of this sacred group that God had set aside and says, I covenant with you. Deuteronomy says, I have chosen to love you. So he's looking at who he is. He's like, man, from the beginning I was set aside to God. It's a symbol of my devotion to God. My parents had me circumcised on the eighth day. But I'm part of the people of God too. I have it good. If anyone has it good, it's someone who's already God's person before he even knows what he's doing. Genetically, historically, keep going. Third, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, many of us not being... Israelite in background and maybe not being Old Testament scholars think the tribe of Benjamin is just merely a tribe. You know, <clears throat> we call him Paul. That was the name he used when he was working among Greek people. What name did he use when he was working among Hebrew people? Saul. Saul's a Hebrew name. You know any other characters named Saul? The first king of Israel, like their George Washington? So here's a guy whose tribe and namesake go back and show the nobleness of his tribe. In fact, as the tribes split, after Solomon is king, the tribes have a little bit of a civil war. They don't really war with each other, but they break apart. There's secession. The ten tribes that are always, always have a bad king. And then there's two tribes that remain faithful to the descent of David. Judah, David's tribe, and Benjamin. He's in a good tribe. He's not merely an eight there. He's not merely one of God's chosen. He's the godly of the chosen. He's in the good tribe. He's in George Washington's state. Right? He's, he's good. And, and then he just, just to make it clear, he says he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. This reminds me of Top Gun, the best of the best. This is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Hey, I'm already God's people, but... I've got more of it than you. You can almost feel like he's playing on this because he's playing it to his shame. But you can almost feel him sarcastically bragging because he's writing to a Gentile church. And perhaps there's pressure on them to check off the religious boxes. And he's like, as a Gentile and outsider, not circumcised the eighth day, not of the tribe of Benjamin, not a Hebrew at all, at best, you're a poser. This is who I am from my upbringing. You got nothing on me. Before we go any further, it is possible that you have just absolutely flawless theological commitments. You're a Calvinist or you're not a Calvinist. You're Reformed, or you're not. You go to a Baptist church, after all. Clearly, God loves you. Can we just pause for a moment and have enough clarity with Scripture already to recognize there are things we put confidence in that we believe make God pleased with us? that have nothing to do 
with Christ in the sense of giving us God's favorable gaze. God has not looked on one person because of their Calvinistic theology and loved them more because of it. That's heresy to think that way. It is soul-damning heresy to think that way. Now, I want you to all be biblically right on. But if you take pride in it, I hope this morning you'll repent. Listen, there are good churches, there are okay churches, there are unhealthy churches, there are bad churches. I think God desires and is pleased with his people when they obey him because they love him. But God offers no special category of love because you go to this church. God does not save you because you go to this church. And if you find your security and your confidence and, and you rest in checking off boxes, no matter how right the boxes be, you're doing it wrong. Listen, God asked Israel to be circumcised the eighth day. God chose Israel. God said, I love Israel. These are all noble things, but they are not noble when they displace hope in Christ. When they become a source of confidence that is not Jesus Christ. When we latch onto them to avoid censure from others or mockery from others, of course, these are not okay. He continues his discussion with 5, 6, and 7 as to the law of Pharisee. The Pharisees were exacting in their expectations of obedience. They were externally just right on in terms of obeying the law in a lot of ways. In fact, they added a whole bunch of regulations in fine print just in case you accidentally misstepped. Literally, they tithed of their herb garden. Any of you tithing your vegetable garden? My wife, every once in a while, buys these little basil plants. I probably should tell her, hey, Whenever you pinch off 10 leaves, make sure you set one aside. We'll drop in the offering plate. Like, how exacting is that? That's, that's how precise they were. That if you had an herb garden, you had to tithe of your herb leaves. I, I'm, I'm guessing when you get like 14 cents of interest on your checking account at the end of the month, that you're not thinking, ooh, honey, did you give? Like, like do, we, do we add a little bit to the offering? Because we got 14 cents of interest. That's a Pharisee exacting out their obedience. He says, as to this, I was absolutely flawless. Continues on, as to zeal. So just in case we think sincerity is a solution, because sometimes we think it is. Right? Like, well, the reason people um, get it wrong is because they're just checking off boxes and it's not from their soul. It's not from their heart. It's insincere. It's, it's hypocritical. Listen, that was not the problem with Paul. Look at what it says. He says, that's a zeal. He was one pursuing the church. That is, he was taking political risks and pressing an issue because he was genuinely passionate and sincere about the cause of the God he thought he was worshiping. Sincerity saves nobody. And maybe just in case that was unclear, sincerity is not centered on Christ saves nobody. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He did not have skeletons in his proverbial closet. 
He was not only sincere in genuine passion, that sincerity was soul deep. He was not a two-faced man. If we were to go through his life with a fine-tooth comb, we would not find porn on his computer screen. We would not find that he's bad-mouthing people behind their back and filled his life with a gossip. He was a man whose righteousness was sincere and life-filled sincerity of blamelessness. Okay. Did he have any reason to hope? If any man would be a blessed man, if any man would have the smile of God on him, it's the man that fits that profile. It's the man that fits that profile. I want to broaden the profile because I think this is Paul's testimony, but he does not want them to stick in Judaism. Come down with me to verses 18 and 19. Because he's still in the same theme. This theme runs all the way down through probably chapter 4, verse 3. So he's in the middle of his discussion, and he hits off on, on another application. It's totally different. Verse 18. Many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their, their belly. He's saying these people, the thing that moves them is their own desires. They glory in their shame and they have minds set on earthly things. I think we do ourselves a disservice if we see this merely in terms of salvation proper without any broader context to how we live as Christians already. Paul's writing to a Christian church. He's talking to a Christian church that's struggling with um, playing with maybe a syncretistic approach. That is, I can still be a Christian and date an unsaved guy type of stuff where they set their minds on the things of this world and their desires drive them and they begin to not hold Christ as satisfying enough. And they begin to think that they are going to live how they want to live in this life and still hold on to Jesus. He's not merely preaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel as a pattern for life for believers too. Okay, so this is not just the entry into salvation, but this is the foundation of your whole spiritual house that he's preaching to. Idols offer a reasonable hope for confidence. A reasonable hope for confidence. And if Paul says if anyone else had reason for confidence, he had more. I want you just to, to follow this text carefully, and you'll, you'll see he's talking about confidence here, where we place our hope or where we place our, our, our expectations of security and, and goodness and happiness and satisfaction. If you look down in verse 4, he says, Though I have reason for confidence in the flesh. He says again, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. If you come down to, to verse 9, he says it again in a little different way. He says, not having a righteousness of what? Of my own. That comes through deeds of the law. So, so he's, he is setting his hope of goodness prior to this awakening that he speaks of in verses 7, 8, and 9 on how good he is. Right, so what will make the Apostle Paul pre-salvation happy? Well, we know what makes him happy. What is it? 
He's righteous. Who's righteous? He, without Christ, because of all that he does. I mean, you can almost see how long his arm is to reach behind his back and slap himself on the back and say, Paul, you're good. He's very proud of his goodness. He has his whole entire joy and confidence in his goodness. If we're, to, if we're to kind of peel this back a little bit in terms of application, what do you need to make you happy? Might be the answer Paul says, I'm happy because I'm good. I'm happy because I know God is good with me. I'm righteous. Some of you in various ways would say, I would be good if I just had a girlfriend. Some of you would say, I'd be happy if I just had financial security. Some of you would be satisfied if you just felt healthy. If when you stood up from a chair, you didn't hear your bones like a rusty hinge. Some of you think you would just be happy if people respected you and treated you well. Some of you would be happy if you had a good job. Some of you would be happy if you just had kids who were nice. Some of you would be happy if you had kids that just liked you. There are a lot of things we put our confidence in. Someone who's commiserating, well, I don't know if they're commiserating, they're, they maybe made a point about how excited they were to have boys. And I said, yeah, I have a retirement plan, I have girls. When you're 80 and your kids take care of you, you just tell me how good guys will do. So I have, I have girls. They're, they're actually caring. They actually love me. He's like, ooh, yeah, that's a good point. Like, but they could marry a good daughter. So, I mean, you could have good daughters-in-law, and they'll take care of you. Because if my dad had to only worry about his boys taking care of him, he's in rough shape. I jokingly say that I have no confidence. I should have no confidence. Let me clarify that in insurance companies. I should have no confidence in my own intellect. I should have no confidence in my own health in the sense that these give me a sense of well-being and satisfaction and happiness. Scripture tells me my life is a vapor. It's passing away. If you think your marriage will deeply satisfy you and so you cannot wait to not be single, I probably ought to set up some counseling dates with some marriages in our church where there have been hard times and they say there's things that are really difficult about marriage. It doesn't just answer all the sorrows of the heart. One day your health will fade. One day your finances will not be yours to spend. One day your achievements at work will be unnoticed, unremembered, and unimportant. One day your neighbors will no longer know who you are because you've moved away or they have. One day your marriage will be gone. And that's why the Apostle Paul says they set their affections, their hopes on things of this earth. What happens to these false gods that we love and pursue and we find security in? What happens to them? They are dust, and to dust they return. The Apostle Paul is looking at all of his accumulated reasons for confidence, and he realizes 
It's like sand draining through his fingers. They do not hold up to his hopes and dreams. They do not secure him before God. And in fact, I think it's really clear in this text. Look down with me in verses 8 and 9. He says, indeed, let's go back to verse 7. He says, whatever gain I have. He's looking at all of these confidences. And if we're to amplify them, maybe today's Christian. It is that they have a great portfolio in 401k. Their children love them. They have a secure employment. They have a wonderful neighborhood. Everyone loves and respects them. They pile up the pleasures and goods of this life. They have four-wheelers in their garage, and they have a vacation home on the beach and in the mountains. I mean, that type of family. Just pile it up. Go with your dreams and put them all in that pile. That gain I had is now loss. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I lost it all. He doesn't say it vanished from me. He says, on the ledger, all of these things in my account whereby I said, this is good. This is so good. Look at me. I'm good. All of that that was in his, like, Paul is doing great column. He looks at it, and when he meets Christ on the road to Damascus, he's going, I got it all wrong. It's all in the debt ledger, the loss ledger. It's not merely nothing, it's loss. And here's why it's loss. Continue on. He said, I counted a loss for the sake of Christ. This is where the, the, the idolatry comes in, or as we get down to verses 18 and 19, he calls it the God of this world or the God of their belly because he sees and recognizes that within himself, there's this idolatrous heart of false confidence in something that cannot save, in something that cannot satisfy, in something that gives him no standing before God with which his heart can rest at peace with a righteous God. And so he recognizes that while he had put his hope in here, it had displaced any hope in the right thing. If I were to say it more clearly or more strongly, perhaps, any hope that is not in Christ alone is toxic dissatisfaction with Christ. In terms of percentages, if you have 1% of your hope in something that is not Jesus Christ in terms of salvation, you are not yet saved. In terms of sanctification, you're doing it wrong. And we should worry about your salvation. And I don't mean that to instill in anyone an anxiety that they're not saved, but that you might pursue purity in your soul in terms of your faith. This is where Galatians says, having begun in the Spirit, he's talking about faith in God to save. Are you now made perfect, he says, by the works of the flesh? The same way in which we are saved, faith alone in Christ's righteousness and his work alone is how we now walk by faith alone in Christ for all of life, not merely just the Christian-y things. Like, what makes you satisfied with the $2 you have in your bank account? I, I know my heart would be tempted to anxiety if I look at my ledgers and I only have $2 to spend. 
my heart will be spinning and my mind will be thinking, how do I survive this week? Can you be satisfied on the brink of poverty? Can you be satisfied in a marriage that's not everything you want it to be? Can you be satisfied in a work environment where your boss doesn't like you? Can you be satisfied? The answer is, I'm clearly not doing well here. The answer is, yes. Satisfaction, think about it this way. If, if, if I am standing on two legs and all of my weight and all of my standing and all of my hopes and all of everything that makes me happy is in Christ, you can take anything you want to from under that other foot and I stand firm, satisfied in Christ. I think many of us as Christians are standing in the world and on Christ. And as life hurts, as we suffer, as God graciously brings suffering to teach us to lean on Christ alone, we struggle with balance. And we struggle with satisfaction. And we hurt. And we sin because it hurts. Or we look and we say, man, it'd be so good to have this. And we begin to pursue the things of the world and not Christ alone. And we might be standing fine in our own imagination. But if God were to take that thing away, we topple. And we're miserable. Let me conclude this morning by just teasing out where we're going to land next week and meditate I think it's so rich, I wanted it to spend at least one whole sermon on just considering what it means to have the treasure of Christ. But that would be the next point. The true treasure is knowing Christ. The true treasure is knowing Christ. Again, going back to this, he's recognized that all of his, his hopes in anything but Christ are not merely not wise, not merely just spiritually neutral. They're, in fact, loss. So it says, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Again, if we're going to a ledger here and we kind of have the, the, the debt of all of his accomplishment, their debt because they, they, they took away what was pure gain. What's gain? Having Christ. Now, I think he uses a couple metaphors here, but if you go back to, to verse 8, he says the surpassing what? Worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And then he talks about the gain of Christ. This might remind you, and it should remind you of earlier. He says, for me to live and to die is, excuse me, for me to live is Christ and to die is, oh, it's what? So, so he's thinking about what truly is profitable in this life. What is truly gain. What is truly something, if I am going through my life and saying, what are the things I want to pursue because they give real value? Paul says, get the plural out of there. Not things. Person. 
knowing Christ, possessing Christ, being conformed to Christ. If you have Christ, you have all of the grace of God. And if you have not Christ, you have none of the saving grace of God. We, we, we do such a disservice to the person of Christ that we think we can get the saving benefits, we can get the forgiveness of God, we can get sweet relationship with God without having Jesus. You never get that without Jesus. You never get forgiveness if you don't have Christ himself. In fact, in this passage, he speaks of his righteousness. Look again at verse 9. Be found in whom? Christ. That's the point. He says, in him. Be found in Jesus Christ, not having a righteousness of my own. Well, if anyone had it, it was Paul. And he says, no, no, no. That type of righteousness actually took me away from Jesus Christ. It took me away from hope in him. It took me away from being faithful to him. It took me away from being a lover who trusts and hopes in the satisfaction of Christ more than anything in this life. Be found in Christ Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own, but that righteousness, doesn't say the word righteousness yet, it comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God. How does Paul get righteous? By getting Christ. When I was getting married, I got many benefits from my wife. Her huge checking account, I think at that point, is about $2,000. Maybe it's four. She was rolling. I had like 200 <laughs> When we get Christ, the storehouse of heaven opens. And if you don't have Christ, it remains closed. We offer salvation, and sometimes we'll say things like, if you want to be forgiven, if you want God to save you from hell, then just say this prayer or just, just trust in the work of Christ, and we can, we can move the stuff that Christ offers away from the person of Christ. And it would be like someone telling me in premarital, premarital, like, hey, just ask her to marry you. Then you get the 2000 bucks. No. That comes with her. And what do you love about marriage? The 2000 bucks? I mean, that's a lot of money. Or her. Can you imagine how heartbroken she would be if I ever communicated to her, hey, I want your money, but not you. Or man, I'm so glad we're getting married. You come with 2000 bucks. You guys are laughing. That would be so disgusting. If the reason, the hope in coming to this precious woman is not the woman, but her bank account or her cooking or intimacy or just because I'm bored and lonely and she talks to me. Like, those are benefits that are tied to the person. Righteousness, a righteous standing never comes to you without Jesus Christ himself. Listen, if you're struggling, if you're hurting, if you're suffering, and you are disentangling life choices from Jesus Christ himself, you're going to do this wrong. The kid who loves soccer more than Sundays loves soccer more than the Savior. The girl who's starting to date an unbelieving guy 
is abandoning the Savior and all that comes with him in relationship with him. She is choosing to love this world, this stuff, more than her eternal Savior. That's idolatry. And it will leave you broken and spiritually penniless and miserable. You're struggling with anxiety, with anger, if you have a bitter heart. A lot of these sins go back to the fact that God has threatened or removed the things of this earth. And you're ticked. You're worried because he's taken out from underneath your legs financial security, relational security, health. And all of a sudden, you're starting to topple, and you're like, how dare you? That's idolatry. Do you have Jesus? Do you have the Savior? The rest of this text, all the way through chapter 4, pleads with the Philippians to pursue Christ. Not because they're not going to suffer, but because they will suffer, and it's worth it for Jesus Christ. In fact, look at 4.1. Therefore, he's like wrapping things up. So let me wrap up with this. Therefore, what should you do? I mean, even just the affection. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy, my crown. You can hear the heart of the apostle, right? Like, like he's, he's got a metaphorical tear working through his eyes as he's like, I love you. I'm pouring my heart out in ink. Hear me. Do what? In the Lord Jesus Christ. Suffering is going to hit you. It's going to test you. Do you love Jesus more than your satisfaction, more than your happiness, more than your comfort? Do you love Jesus? Stand firm. Listen, stuff is going to push you away. Sin is going to tempt you away. Do not leave Jesus. I love you. You're my brothers. You're my crown. I rejoice over you when I pray to the Father. Stay with the Lord. Stay with him. I think that's why you can get such a strong admonition to these fighters in the church. Whatever you're fighting over, it's stupid. You have Jesus. Stop it. I don't care why you hate each other. Stop it. You have Jesus. Yeah, but she did. Stop. You have Jesus. Stand firm in him. I don't care if they threatened everything that you hold dear, except for Jesus. You still have Jesus. Be good. Put your hands of fighting down. Put your words of violence down. You have Jesus Christ. And if you have Jesus, you have it all. And if you don't have him, you have nothing. I speak to a church in various places of life. So let me just conclude with the, the rhythm of this final verse. He says, I have gained Christ. I have been found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes by, by what? Faith. A righteousness that is from God. 
The source and anchor of our hope is outside of ourselves. It is singularly in God's grace through Christ. Trust in that. A life of trust begins at salvation and never stops trusting. Some of you are weak, you're struggling, your trust is threadbare, and we can see right through to the lack of trust when we talk to you or when you look in the mirror honestly. Christ is worth it. I do not know what he's called you to suffer. I do not know what earthly joys he has taken away from you. I do not know how difficult your life is. I don't know what work is like, but I know this, Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. Be faithful to him, love him, trust in him. If you are not currently satisfied with what's going on in your life, maybe he's calling you to obey him. Maybe he's calling you to repent. But the theological foundation of those activities is hope in Christ, not blamelessness, not sincerity, not duty. It's being satisfied with Christ so that you can answer your child peacefully. So that a lonely night with your spouse working late, you can be content with Christ. So that we don't have enough money and Christ has providentially put you in a place of need, you have Christ. Is he yours? Do you trust him for salvation and not for satisfaction? Or do you trust him for both? Salvation from sin and satisfaction in this earthly life he's given you. Christ is enough. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this reminder. If Jesus is enough and we have Jesus, there should be a sense of celebration in the room. It is sobering, though, to be reminded how much the Apostle Paul did and how he views all of those accomplishments as detriments because they took his eyes off of Christ. They displaced a faith in him and a satisfaction from Christ. So, Lord, we pray for this church family that there might be joy in the Lord, that they might be holding Christ fast. Lord, if, if you have brought in times of sorrow and times of loss to teach us that Christ is enough, we thank you. If you have given us times of prosperity and goodness and our checking account and our life experiences are full and fat, guard us from idolatry. These things never satisfy. Only our Savior is where satisfaction comes. Where all the treasures, all the experiences, all the honors of this world piled next to Christ. Lord, help your church to choose Christ. Not the things of this world. Lord, I pray that we would not merely grudgingly hold Christ, but we would find him to be worth it, to be all satisfying, to be good, because we know that in him, the promise of the resurrection, the hope of glory, eternal wealth and honor are ours in Christ, but never without him. So Lord, help us cling to Christ with arms of faith. And in so doing, we can suffer in faith. We can hold tight and be faithful until the end when you return and bring us home. 
Lord, give us joy until then in Christ. Amen.